Well, how's everybody doing? You guys all having a great weekend? Well, why don't we just go before the Lord. Father, we just thank you for another opportunity where we can just open your word. We thank you that your words are life to us, that your words are not void of power. They go forth and they accomplish that which they were sent to do. I thank you that your word stands true forever. Come on, do you believe that this morning, church? Are they just as relevant to you today as they were when they were written? They never fade out and they never will. Father, we thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are in us and with us this morning. Bring revelation and knowledge to us. Show us what it was that you inspired when you gave inspiration to these writers. And so we just thank you that you show us things to come. You bring things to our remembrance. You lead us in paths of peace and you show us how to glorify the Father. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Well, we've been on a series for the month of September called Foundation, and we started off here in Matthew chapter 7, which let's, let's, let's go over that before we continue on. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24, it says, these words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. They are not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. And I, I have to say that I've been in positions in my, in my walk with God where I've almost used him more as an addition you know, you take what you've already had in your life and you add God to it. That was not his intention. Everybody say this with me. They are foundational words, words to build a life on, meaning Jesus is where you start for everything. He is the foundation, the only firm foundation. I, I found myself singing that old song, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. And it says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so we told you that there's different foundations that we all begin to respond to from and make our decisions from based upon how we've been raised, our family background, our cultural background, and whatever it is, however you've been raised, we all need to come to the conclusion because every one of us, whether you had a great upbringing or a poor upbringing, need to realize that your foundation is broken stones. There is only one firm foundation, it is Jesus. And he said, if you work these words into your life, now if, we've been telling you, is conditional. It does not happen automatically. You know, a lot of people in Christianity want God just to automatically do whatever you want to do, God. Oh, I just, just do it. Just go ahead and do it. And he's saying, well, why don't you work with me? It's a relationship. Now, I know from natural relationship, if I just look at my relationship between my, my beautiful wife who isn't here this morning, she's been off at a women's conference all weekend, but if I look at our relationship, if she was the one doing all of the work, that wouldn't be a healthy relationship. You know what that would lead to? Frustration, a little bit of resentment. And so when it comes to our relationship with God, he doesn't get frustrated with us. He doesn't get resentful, but relationships are never meant to be one-sided. You ever had that friend where if you never called them, you'd never hear from them? That's not a true relationship. Relationships have two sides to them. And so Jesus is saying here, if you work these words into your life, meaning they won't work themselves in, 
They need to be accepted and applied. He says, if you do that, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on the solid rock. The rain poured down, the river flooded, the tornado hit, or if we want to just make that super simple, life happened. Life happens sometimes, doesn't it? But he says, when it's founded on Jesus, the rock, nothing moved the house. It was fixed to the rock. But then he contrasts to another group of people where he says in verse 26, but if you just use my words in Bible studies and you don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. And when the storm came, rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. And so he's contrasting two groups of believers. And a lot of people like to treat this section of verses as the believers and unbelievers or Christians and non-Christians, but that's not what he's contrasting. He's looking at those who believe. Both heard the word, both knew the word, but only one segment of them actually applied the word. And it allowed them to stand strong, and the other was washed away like a house of cards. Now, Jesus told the Pharisees, and he got them all riled up when he made this statement. He said, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And why did they get so mad about that? Because they had to come to the conclusion that their foundation on the law and the foundation on their works wasn't good enough. And so when Jesus told them, you guys have rejected me, but I am the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first brick laid. It is the one that gets laid straight, it gets laid level, and every other brick in the building is referenced off of that cornerstone. And if you think about something Jesus told Peter, he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I'm, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, you're right, Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church. When Jesus said on this rock, he wasn't talking about a little stone. The original Greek, the word is actually brahos, which means great edifice. And if you want to have a picture in your mind, if you've ever seen the Acropolis in Athens, it's like this giant hunk of rock shooting out of the ground with a big building on top of it. He wasn't talking about a little stone He wasn't talking about a brick. He was saying, my foundation is strong, immovable, impenetrable, and everything that comes up against it will crash. So he is the cornerstone. And I like how Peter, quoting the Old Testament, said, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I love that. God gives you a firm promise there. Believe in me, you won't be disappointed. Now, when most people hear that statement, though, what they hear is, life will all be rainbows and lollipops and unicorns, and it's all going to be happy, happy, happy. Good, good, good. Um, Life is not always easy, but with God, it's worth it. And you hear the way some people preach the Bible, and it's like, you, you, they give you the idea that you're never going to run into a problem, then of course, what happens? Life happens. You run into a problem, and you're like, oh, I must be out of the will of God. Oh, God must be mad at me. No, it's life. 
The Bible says that it rains on the just and the unjust, meaning sometimes rain is a good thing. Sometimes too much rain is not a good thing. It happens to the just and the unjust, but what the difference is is what foundation are you working from? Trials and tribulations will come, but they don't have to rule you. They don't have to dictate how you respond. We get to respond from Jesus, the rock that never fails, who can't be moved. He is steady day in and day out. And so we told you that life can happen to you or it can happen through you. The difference is one is reactive to the situations that come. Oh no, what am I going to do? The other is proactive. It's already decided what I'm going to do. Whatever comes through my door today, I will not be moved. Because I am more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. I always triumph in Christ Jesus. I always win. In case you didn't know it, those last two were verses from the Bible that are spoken about you. Some Christians need to notify themselves of what the Bible actually says about them. God has good plans for you, a good future, a good hope, and the trials of life don't matter because you can overcome them. And so back in week one, we took Paul's advice, and it was this. Don't think you're better than you really are, but be honest in your evaluation of yourself. When we look at ourselves, we have to realize we are found lacking. You are not strong enough. You are not smart enough. And he knew this, so he put his strength in you. He knew you weren't smart enough, but he said, my thoughts and my ways are higher than your thoughts and your ways. And so he decided, if humanity can't do this, I'll come down and do it for them. He got up on the cross, he got nailed to it, he bore all sin, shame, sickness upon his body, and he said, it is finished. And so when we look at our foundation, whether it's good or bad, it's not worth anything. It says Jesus is the only foundation worth it. So this morning I want to take a different turn with this, and I want you to join me over in 1 Peter we're going to look at a little bit out of chapter 1 and chapter 2. For the sake of time, we can't go through it all. But I want to start here in verse 3, where it says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again. So who is He talking to? Believers. If that is you, He's talking to you. If you're not a believer, hey, we can do something about that. It's an easy step. But he said, because God has raised Jesus from the dead, now we live with great expectation. I would say that that does not reflect most of Christianity. Does that reflect you? I know there's days where that does not reflect me. But when you are born again, we have now been enabled to live with great expectation. What is Peter saying? He's saying you can have hope. The definition of hope in the Greek is a confident expectation of good things to come. Because of your foundation in Jesus, because you have been born again, you can have a confident expectation of good things to come. We can live with hope. I like what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for our minds. That's the word he uses. It's mostly rendered soul, but it's psihi, mind, will, and emotions. God is saying the word of God and Jesus become an anchor of hope for you. So we need to notify our faces. 
I have a confident expectation of good things coming into my life. Trials may come, but guess what? I don't open my door to them. I open my door wide to the good things God has for me. But he didn't leave it there. He then said, and we have a precious or a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change or decay. What does that mean for us as believers? It means that the trials of life can't change what God has given to you. It says it's beyond their reach. It's unchangeable. So just because our emotions may have changed that day, just because our our status in the world may have changed that day, your inheritance in Christ Jesus has not changed because he hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Now, I really don't like how the New Living Translation has rendered that because it's not reflective of what the Greek actually says. Here it says, he protects you by his power until you receive this salvation, but didn't Peter already say he was talking to believers who have already received salvation? And so if we look back to the King James, it's rendered a little more accurately. It says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And all that God has put inside of you will be fully revealed at the last time. And so right now we only see a glimpse and a picture of what God has done. But in the last day, you will also be like, oh my goodness, I was more than I ever realized. God had done more for me than I ever could have seen through my natural limited vision. So he goes on this next verse. He says, so be truly glad. This, there is wonderful joy ahead. Oh, come on. Am I talking to you or am I talking about somebody else? There is wonderful joy ahead. Is that what your future says about you? There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. And that's where we want to check out. Okay, I liked the first few verses, but Pastor Jordan, you've lost me. I don't want to talk about this. I just want to avoid it. I just want to stick my head in the sand. Oh, come on. Trials and tribulations, you need to understand them from the right perspective because it will will change how you go through them when you understand what is actually going on. The next verse says this. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Through your, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory. So here, he tells you that when trials and circumstances hit, it shows you what you actually believe. It says it will show you that your faith is genuine. You know, I've met a lot of people that will tell you what they believe, and then when the circumstance hits, we get to see what they believe. Because what people say isn't always what they actually believe. And I've learned over the last 12 years of being a pastor that you listen to someone long enough, you will find out what they truly believe, because someone can fake it for five minutes, but when you're there 30 minutes, an hour, the real starts to come out. It says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it says trials and tribulations actually expose where you're at 
in your faith. And he references it as being like gold. Now, most people think that fire is a bad thing, but for precious metals, fire is a good thing. It draws out their imperfections and their impurities, and it actually makes them better. So don't think of fire as being destructive to you because it says God is a consuming fire, and he will burn out all the imperfections and the impurities out of you, and you come out better on the other side of it. Now, when it comes to gold, the more heat, the more you get the junk out. And actually, from a natural standpoint, Canada actually made the most pure gold that has ever been made in the world. In 2007, they were able to purify gold down to 99.999. It's called 5.9 gold. It is the purest gold that exists on this earth. It has taken as much of the impurities out as they could. This is the most pure thing. And so they thought, hey, you know what the greatest thing is? We should make like a giant coin out of it. And the thing weighs like 60 kilograms. It is super heavy. And so they made their original one, and everybody was like, oh, that's awesome. And so they made five more on custom order. One is in the Royal Museum in, in Toronto, and then four went around the world. Actually, there's an Arab guy who bought one and made it into a coffee table. Now, I should probably reference that these are worth about $6 million. He has a $6 million coffee table. One of them actually ended up in, the, in a museum in Germany and, uh, where they show a whole bunch of coins. And one day there was a broken window that a security guard knew about. And so he co co conspired with some other people and the coin disappeared and has never been seen again. That's a $6 million loss. Thank goodness for insurance. But this is, represents something that the impurities have been removed under pressure and under heat. This is what you look like under the microscope of God. He sees you pure. He sees you perfect. But a lot of times we've, we've pulled in a lot of junk throughout our lives. But when trials come, there's only one foundation. It's either Jesus and everything else burns up. And so he says this, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. And it says, afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love them. And you can kind of get the idea when you're reading through this that, oh, so God's going to send all this garbage my direction to prove who I truly am? No. Now, religion would tell you that, but that would, whenever you're interpreting the Bible, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture, not experience. Many people like to look at the Bible through their lens of experience, and we all come to the Bible with our own biases. Even the translators have their own biases. But when it comes to this verse, you need to now uh, interpret it through another verse, and that is James chapter 1, verse 13. It says, And remember when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So when trials and circumstances show up in your life, the first place you need to realize it did not come from God, but he can do something about it. It says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And it says, these desires give birth to single, sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to, everyone say this, grow, 
it gives birth to death. So every trial and circumstance in our life starts with us and ends with God. And just because it entered your life, you don't have to let it grow. What does it take for something to grow? It needs good soil. It needs some water. It needs some fertilizer. And what happens when little things start to come in? We let them fester. We let thoughts that we shouldn't be dwelling on grow and get larger and larger. And before you know it, it has now begun to consume your life and dictate how you're responding to people around you. You ever met somebody who's are just gone while well, you're going about your day and they're just like, oh my goodness, I just want to back out of this room and shut the door. Someone did something to their breakfast. It all starts somewhere. Someone cut you off in traffic. Where did you go from there? Oh my goodness, I, I, was, I don't know why this came up the other day. I was driving and I remember, I, I probably was in like five or six, and my grandfather, his dad, he used to yell at every car around him, you stupid idiot! And I'm like, I haven't, he died when I was 13, so I don't know why this memory came up, but I'm like, how can it bother you that much that you wasting all of this energy, they can't hear you. <laughs> but we've all met people like that throughout our lives and we've all been that person. There's things that happen and they start small and then we let them fester and they get worse and they get worse and they get worse and they get worse. I'll give you a personal example. Actually, I'll pick on my wife because she's not here. <laughs> <coughs> a month or two ago, we were having some good conversations about where we were wanting to go in life, and she's like, I, I've just got to stop, and i got to confess something. And I'm like, what, what, what do you have to confess? She's like, about four months ago, my good camera was up on the top of the shelf, and I opened a door, and I knocked it off, and I smashed the lens, and I smashed it, and these were expensive things, and she's like, and I was like, oh, I knew that you wouldn't be happy about that, so I didn't tell you. I'm like, when was this? She's like, four months ago. And she's like, and the longer I waited telling you, the harder it got. And I'm like, I don't care. It's a camera. It's your camera. It's not my loss. It's your loss. But for four months, she's been like, oh, should I tell him? Should I not? And allowing that thing to fester until finally we're having this heart to heart. And she's like, I just got to tell you. We've all been there in that position. But when we allow things to grow, we might not like what grows. It's just like when you're weeding your garden, it's much easier to pull them out when they're just little flower, little leaves coming up before they get the thistles and the thorns on them and they're prickling your hand. So then he goes on in the next verse, he says, so don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. He says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in heaven and he never changes and he never casts a shifting shadow. So when it comes to the trials and the tribulations in our life, God did not send them to you, but he will use them. He will take them and he will use them to improve you. To, it will test your faith and it will show you what the real you believes. And we, if we don't like what we believe, we can change it. You are not stuck. I love what Paul said to the Romans. He says, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean that what just showed up in your life is good, 
but it will turn for good. So, what do we do? I love that if you ask questions, the Bible always has answers. So ask questions. Peter answers, what do we do? Verse 13, so prepare your minds for action. What does it mean to prepare? Preparation is always done beforehand. Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope, all of your confident expectation of good things to come in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Christ Jesus is revealed to the world. But he says, so you must live as God's obedient children and don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. And so there's no excuse for us. We don't need to follow these old patterns and the old cycles. God wants to break those cycles and get you into cycles of hope expectation, understanding that there is an inheritance and a promise for you, a confident expectation of good things to come. We don't need to be expecting that every disaster is going to hit our door. We need to be expecting that the goodness of God has found me, that his blessings overtake me. Hallelujah. So if we jump down to verse 2, Peter continues his thoughts and he says, therefore lay aside all malice or anger Lay aside all deceit. Stop lying to yourself. This isn't about lying to others. That verse is about lying to yourself. Don't deceive yourself. You're not stuck. You're not broken. Even if you were, he can repair you. Lay aside all hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking. And then he tells us, once you've pushed those things out the door, I love that he tells us what to do. It's one thing to recognize you have a problem. It's another thing to do something about it. So he says in verse 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So think about this. It says that trials and tribulations can grow. But did you know that when you insert the word into your life, it has opportunity to grow? So the question is, what have you planted in the garden of your life? You want to know? Look at the harvest you have right now. What you put in the ground grows. Right, Garnet? You put corn in the ground, you get corn. You put wheat in the ground, you get wheat. Or I guess you put soybean in the ground and you get a great harvest, right? Always ask a farmer. They know more about seed than I do. You get a harvest from what you've planted in the garden of your life. One took tribulations and trials and planted them and let them grow. Peter said the solution is take the word and plant it in your garden and get a harvest from the word. It says, if indeed that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I like that. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. That he's not looking at you, looking at all your wrongs and all the things you've done right. He's not keeping a scoreboard in heaven saying, oh, chalk one up for the good side, ah, oh, three up for the bad. No, God's grace has appeared to you. It has wiped out your sins and your transgressions, and he's looked at Jesus and said, is this how Jesus sees it? Then that's how I see them. The word empowers us to grow and break out of the cycles of relying on our old foundation. So whatever your foundation was, 
the word of God will always break it and bring it back to Jesus. It's kind of like running. Anybody here like running? I don't run. <laughs> but my sister loves to run. And I remember on her first marathon that she was running, I met her about the 20-mile mark. And so marathons are about 26, I think it's 0.2 miles long. And so she's 20 miles in to this marathon. And we meet her, and she's just bawling, I don't want to go on! I can't do this! And I said to her, I'm like, you've come 20 miles. What's six more? But the difference is, what have you been training for? If you can't run 10 feet, one mile seems like a mountain. But if you run 10 miles, one mile seems like, hey, this is a great light day. And so what have you been preparing for? What have you been practicing for? Because that will change how you face the trials and how you face the situations that come up in your life. If you can run 10 miles and the trial's only one, hey, that's an easy day. But the more you learn to rely on the word, the easier it is to just be like, oh, sidestep, oh, close the door. When we build up our endurance and our knowledge of the word, perspective begins to shift. And we look through the eyes of what God has said about us versus what our natural eyes are looking at. So Peter's advice was, like newborn babes, you must crave. I like that word in the New, Li New Living Translation. That You must crave. There's a desire involved. The more you get into the word, the more you begin to understand and then the more you want to understand. He says, crave the pure spiritual milk, milk so that you will grow into full experience of salvation. I want to get to heaven and realize that I've been using a lot of what God gave me. I want to look back and say, hey, I was pretty good at walking in the full experience of salvation that God left for me. But he says, now that you've tasted of the Lord's kindness. Verse ne next verse takes a turn, though. It says this, coming to him as a living stone. You realize that he's just not some inanimate stone to place yourself. He's a living stone that interacts. So let's go back to our stones. Ugh, we haven't used these since week one. Jesus is the living stone. He's been rejected by man, but he's chosen by God and precious. So you have to look at how do you view Jesus? Is he important? Is he valuable in your life? Because you have to understand that the world doesn't see his value. The world doesn't see how precious he is. He's been rejected by them, but to God, he's the most precious thing that ever existed. He was the seed that he sown and received back many more kids. But that's not where it ends. It says, you also are a living stone and are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so in week one, Jesus was the foundation 
and then everything else built off of him. But you have to understand, that's looking at it as your kingdom. He's not building your kingdom, he's building his. And so he is the foundation, the first living stone, and he's building the kingdom of God one stone at a time, and you're one of those. And he says, for I behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. How do you end up living a life where you're not disappointed? Find yourself in the God's kingdom rather than yours. You want to reap of what God has prepared for you? Find yourself in God's house. Where, was it set, where did it say that his inheritance was stored up where it can't be changed or corrupted? in his house. So when you find yourself daily at the feet of Jesus, find yourself daily planting in your garden the words he has spoken about you, things begin to grow and living stones begin to interact. And so he's therefore to you who believe. How many believers we got in here? This is who he's talking to you. He is precious but to those who are disobedient, or a better translation would have been those who don't believe, he's contrasting two groups, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief stone cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's no wonder that the world becomes offended at the grace of God and the message that he's given to us. It's not for them. And if you don't accept it, it will be nothing but offense to you. And it says they stumble being disobedient or unbelieving to the word which they were also appointed. But you, so he's talking back to you again. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So he looks at those who are unbelieving and it says they, are, they stumble and they are offended, but you, you are chosen. You are holy. You are special. Now those are in different contrast to week two and three where we were looking at the broken pieces, but when he puts you back together, he doesn't see your broken pieces, he only sees the blood of Jesus. And it says, who were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Hallelujah. So let's go back to chapter one. He said, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation. Now, what did we tell you when we were doing the series over the summer on David? We said that the habits you form on the good days will be your predominant responses on the bad days. So what did Matt Jesus say? He said, if you work these words into your life, meaning if you do it, you get this result. If you don't, you get this result. That's talking about the habits you form on a day-to-day -day basis. So last week's homework, I said to start forming your wor the words you speak about yourself. Start a habit of taking what God's word says about you and speak it when those broken parts not try to be louder than what the word of God says. You need to create a habit of responding to them. But this week, we need to focus around verse 2 of chapter 2. As newborn babes desire the milk of the word. A steady diet of the word prepares you ahead of time for the things you don't even know you need. 
Wouldn't you love to have a crystal ball that you can look into and see what's coming? Um, you don't need that. You've got the Holy Spirit. He prepares you ahead of time for things you don't even know you need yet. And so let's take a look at Jesus, and we should see this reflected in his life. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, So he came to Nazareth, and when he had been brought up, where, or sorry, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. What is another way to say as his custom was? As his habit was. This is what Jesus did on a regular basis. When he was in town, he went to church, and he stood up to read. And it says, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, you can't find something you didn't know was there. And so many Christians are trying to respond out of a deficit of the word. They don't know what God has said about them, so they can't find where it is written if you've never known it. And so Jesus, you have to understand what happens here, is when you get up to read in the synagogue at that point culturally, they would hand you the book and there would be a ribbon that would mark where the last person left off and you are supposed to start where they left off. Jesus just blows right by that and he finds the place where it is written and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that the captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. And so Jesus found the place where he saw himself in the Word. And you can't find yourself in the Word if you've never looked for yourself in the Word and let the Holy Spirit guide you to what He's trying to prepare you for. Jesus knew this was there in Isaiah, and so when it came time for Him to launch out into ministry, He knew what His mission was. He'd already read it in the book of Isaiah. I love what Isaiah also said in chapter 26, verse 3. He says this, You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you and all whose thoughts are fixed on you. How do you fix your thoughts on God? You think his thoughts. Where do you find his thoughts? In the word. But the next verse says this, Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is an eternal rock. In other words, he's the foundation. I like what David said about the word. He said, oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I'm always thinking of your laws. David said, I've been, I can look at the board and say I need to go here and go here because he's so interactive with what God has said about him. He just lets it come out when he needs it. So let's break this down to a complete natural level as we begin to wrap this up this morning. Right? Because it's good to have things practical, right? In 2013, there was a study done by the Wharton School of Business. It was published in the, the Journal of Psychological Science. And so this is not the Bible talking, but we can see it reflected 
in what people are observing. And here it says that 15 minutes of mindfulness meditation can help people make smarter, smarter choices. So a little background, the study that they were doing is they were studying addictions. And the hypothesis they had was that the, the way, way people get into addictions is by learning and festering with poor decisions. And so the way out of an addiction is to learning to make better decisions. And so they said that 15 minutes of mindfulness meditation can help people make smarter choices. What is mindfulness meditation? It is basically taking something and thinking on it. Now you have to understand, you are thinking about something pretty much all day long. You are already doing this with something. And so what they were doing with this study is they were giving them something to think about. And it says they found that mindfulness helped counteract deep-rooted tendencies and led to better decision-making. And they said that a brief period of mindfulness allowed people to make more rational decisions by considering the information available in the present moment, which led to more positive outcomes. So by giving them something to think about ahead of time, they were able to make better decisions in the moment because they'd already prepared for them. How much more if you take the word and begin to prepare your life for the things of the word? It's basically what God told Joshua. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do all according that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you'll have good success. So God's instructions to Joshua was, hey, here's some things that I've written about you. Why don't you think about them and that's when you'll find prosperity and success. Okay. Here's what the book of Proverbs said. It said, my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Don't let them depart from your eyes and keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and they are health to all their flesh. You can take the word and let it be a source of life and health for you. So what's some practical advice going forward? Get on a plan. You ever notice that when you don't plan something, time just begins to slip away? When it comes to the Word of God, have a plan. How do you get a plan? You know, it's so easy. I'm so glad you asked that. You know, we have these great things called Bible apps that everyone has like smartphones these days. It's so wonderful. I use the Olive Tree Bible Study, and I can click on this one section here that takes me to all these different Bible reading plans, and every morning, it tells me what to read. You can also say, hey, I'm going to take the book of Proverbs for this month, and I'm going to read one chapter a day. There's 31 chapters. It's easy to do on a chapter that has 31. If there's only 30 days in the month, hey, read two, two chapters a day. I think you'll be fine. But get on a plan to have constant input, because the more inputs you have, the more you have res to respond from. Major on the covenant that you actually live in. This is a mistake that I see a lot of Christians make, that they start reading in the Old Testament, and then they get stuck and bogged down in Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they're like, oh, I just can't do this anymore. Oh, don't look so holy. You've all been there. Been like, and so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And so-and-so begot so-and-so. 
You have to understand that you are a new covenant Christian and there's a new covenant that's been written for you. It's good to know the Old Testament, but you should major on where you live. Read the, the Gospels. Read the New Testament that have been written to you. You'll find them much more informative because it's talking about you. Number three, focus on quality, not quantity. I've seen so many people fail because they're like, I'm going to read 30 chapters a day. And you're not, that's not sustainable. You don't have the time to do that. But you can take four chapters, one chapter, two chapters, three verses, whatever it is. Focus on actually looking at who's he talking to? In the New Testament, he's talking to you. Focus on the quality. And number four, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. If you're going through a certain situation, say you're, you're, you're just bogged down by worry and anxiety, there's this wonderful thing called Google, and you can go scriptures on worry and anxiety. Click and find 100 scriptures right then that have to do with the situation you're going through. Let, let me tell you this, you, nothing you'll ever experience you're, is you're the only one that's ever been there. Somebody else has been there and we can learn from their experience and find scriptures that are tailored to us. But whatever it is you need to do, the word of God will allow you to grow a garden of life and peace and health and joy and hope and expectation. And so what, it is, what is it that you're focusing on? What has become your foundation? Let it be the word of God. It's the only foundation that matters. So, Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that as we've opened it up, that you've been able to bring things out that we needed to hear. And when we always approach your word with expectation. And so right now is no different. We expect results from your word as we take it and we put it into the garden of our life. We expect that healthy things grow out of what your word has said. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are so blessed. Don't forget, God loves you so much and he accepts you as you are right now. Let's have some coffee and good conversation. Have a great week.